Welcome. This morning we're going to be in First uh, Thessalonians. We're also going to be in Acts 17. So if you want to begin to make your way to First Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, and then also put a finger in Acts 17. Acts 17. If you don't have a Bible, don't own one. There should be one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, there's a table of contents at the front. It's going to let you know where the book of 1 Thessalonians, where the books of 1 Thessalonians and Acts are. And then as we make our way, the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. So Acts 17. Now, what we see in Acts and, and kind of why we're going there is Acts gives us, in some sense, the backstory uh, for Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church. And so it establishes for us how this church came to be, some issues that they may have been encountering, what it was like for them, and, and what it was like for Paul. And so it's instructive for us to lay this groundwork uh, in week one so that as we roll through this, we have this understanding of this is how their relationship existed, these are the things they're wrestling with, these are the things that they're overcoming, and in some sense, this is what we might be able to expect from this letter and why Paul is writing to them. Now let's kind of orient to that need. So Acts uh, 15, the Jerusalem Council, uh, end of Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas split. Acts 16, Paul joins up with Timothy and Silas. They begin to go out. Acts 16 and verse 6, Paul has what's referred to as this Macedonian vision through there. And so he heads in a direction. He wants to go in a certain direction. He has this vision of this man of Macedonia saying, come to us. So he reorients his plans. He heads in a different direction and he heads in full submission to the will of God in this purpose. Now, the first city he comes to is Philippi, and things are great in Philippi. He's out there, and, and things are just so wonderful until the point he's arrested. He's arrested, thrown in jail, and you remember the text tells us that it was late in the night. They're singing praises, and then an earthquake hits. The doors to the prison swing open. All the chains fall off the prisoners. The prison guard rushes in. He says, oy vey, what is me? He's prepared to commit Harry Carey on himself to take his life, and, and Paul says, no, no, don't hurt yourself. So he shares the gospel with him. He shares the gospel with his family. The man radically changes his life. His family life is radically altered, and he submits himself to Jesus Christ in any and every way. It's awesome. Paul leaves Philippi, and he heads to Thessalonica, and look at what it says when we pick up in Acts chapter 17. It says, now when they passed through uh, Amphipolis, and when they headed to Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbaths, so he's there at least three weeks, probably a month and a half, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So he's giving a backstory, he's giving an apology for the gospel. These things were necessary. This had to happen, it had to happen this way. He says, this Jesus, who I preach to you, is the Messiah. This guy's the one you've been waiting on. It had to happen this way. You had to put him to death. He had to rise from the grave. He had to suffer. This is the one you've been waiting on. He gives to the end of the story that they've been engaged in for thousands of years. Verse 4 says, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous 
And taking some wicked men of the rabble, which is a great place to find wicked men, they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of a recent convert named Jason. They sought to brought them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, and his name is Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then the brothers immediately send Paul, they send Silas, they send the fellows out of there, they smuggle them out towards Berea. So Paul goes to Berea, from Berea he goes to Athens, from Athens he goes to Corinth, and from Corinth He links back up with Silas and Timothy, and from Corinth, he writes the church in Thessalonica. So at the point we pick up this letter, a year has transpired from these events. So what we recognize in this group is this was a church birthed from adversity. It's birthed from adversity. They go in, they're having these conversations. People are saying, yes, this makes good sense. It sounds like Jesus is the one we've been waiting on. He is the Messiah. I want to put my faith, I want to put my trust in him. They begin to follow their Christians for three to four weeks. And you kind of see them there. They're gathered in this late night gathering. They've worked all day. They're slaves. They're, they're tradesmen. They're gathered in the home of Jason. Kumbaya, my Lord. Right? Very peaceful. All of a sudden, the doors bust open. People are shouting. People are yelling. They have the, the, the peace of mind, or they have the presence of mind, rather, that they say, we've got to hide Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So they send them out a back door. This rabble grabs Jason. They grab others in the group, and they drag them forcibly before the city authorities. And when they get them before the city authorities, what they tell them is, these men are enemies of the state. These men are seeking to destabilize Rome. These men are leading us to destroy our community, destroy the Roman Empire. What they're asking the authorities to do is to be a good friend to Caesar and to put them to death. This is on their one-month anniversary of being a Christian. This is a church birthed in adversity. And what we come to this understanding of is Paul is at this crossroads of what he needs to communicate to this church. And one of the things that we're going to see this week is is those things we pray are those things we cultivate. The things that we say, this is what we want to be true of you, this is what we want to, to describe, and this is what we want to praise and what we see of you, become those things that we cultivate. So Paul goes in and he praises their actions, he praises their prayers, and he praises their faithfulness. In a hopes that the beginning, the shock, the trauma they faced at the beginning of their faith would not lead them to depart the faith, but would lead them to grow in their faith. Look at how Paul leads in in these first five verses of 1 Thessalonians, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and and in full conviction. And that's where we'll stop this morning. Would you join me in prayer? God, this morning we come into this and we recognize that our minds, our hearts are in many places right now. And so God, I ask that by the power of your spirit that you would place our minds on your text, that you would place our hearts in your hands, that your spirit would move through our lives, and that we would find ourselves reorienting our hearts and minds to you. My prayer for us as a church is that we would praise, that we would lift up, that we would admire those things which bring you glory and honor. And that as a church, that we would cultivate these things in us. that what is true of us would be glorifying and honoring to you. God, we come into this place in ease and in comfort this morning, but recognize the world over men and women are facing conflict and difficulty. Father, we submit to you. We ask for your active intervention in the Ukraine. God, we recognize the adversity that believers there are facing, that the people there are facing, that you are a God of peace and you are a God of justice. And we ask that your peace would reign, that your justice would come. God, we come into this place at war in ourselves, at war with our friends, and war with our families and our co-workers, set apart. We are alienated. God, we ask that you would be a peacemaker in our lives and in our community. God, I pray that those of us this morning who came in this place and we are wrestling with sin, we are losing the battle we fear to sin, God, that you would completely eradicate within us a desire to walk in the flesh, to, to, to live a limited life, and God, that we would submit ourselves to you in every way, God, that you would make us wholly yours, submitted to you. Father, would you give us a sense of your presence in this place today? Would you guide us in the instruction of your word? Would you lead us in its application by the power of your Holy Spirit? We submit this time in our lives to you as an act of worship. In Christ's name, amen. So Paul writes, and he's got Timothy, he's got Silvanus there with him. Now Paul finds out in in 1 Thessalonians 3, what has been going on. He essentially wrote, and he said, when I couldn't stand it any longer, when I couldn't rest not knowing any longer, I sent out Silas back to you, I sent out Timothy rather, back to you so he could bring back report, and I'm so relieved to find out that you're still standing strong in your faith, and what this letter is, is a continued encouragement in that vein. But look at how he describes them. Differently than the other letters you'll find in the New Testament, Paul says it is to the church of the Thessalonians. So he doesn't say it's the church of God in Rome, the church of God at Colossae. It's the church of the Thessalonians. And what he does next is he describes church in terms of its theological roots. He says it's to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what is he doing there and why is it important? One of the things he's doing there, and why it's important, is he's equating the, 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 the supremacy of God the Father and the supremacy of the Son, and he's bringing them under one heading. you got God the Father, you got the Lord Jesus Christ. They are equal. 
They're equal in majesty. And so he's bringing them in. And what has he said about the church? It's the church underneath the authority and the power of God the Father and Christ the Son. Now it's important that he does this because he doesn't want the Thessalonians to think that it is their church, that it is their prerogative that drives the ship, that they get to in any way assert their power and authority control over this church. It is God's church. It is Christ's church. They are, we learn in 1 Corinthians, his body. Now, what does he extend to them? Paul takes this, these, these theologically pregnant terms of grace and peace, and he extends them to this church. Now, this is the vernacular we engage in, right? So somebody says, you know, grace and peace to you. It feels a little bit strange. But what Paul does in communicating this to them is he takes a wonderfully rich New Testament term, grace. You have received the merit, the forgiveness of God, not on the basis of anything you've done. And we hear this and we, we, we reflect upon this, but it becomes this term that's just kind of out there and we have a hard time repeatedly applying it to our lives. Hear it like this, you were far apart from God, wretched and sinful, wanted nothing to do with him, and his grace arrested you in your waywardness. And we begin to come to a sense of awareness and the importance of the richness of this grace. It is not a passaway term. Something so vitally necessary to us. His grace finds us in our strivings. His grace finds us in the sense of I am being depleted. His grace finds us in our waywardness and it calls us and it steadies us in him. And we exhale and we feel the wonder of it. And then he takes the richness of shalom, this Old Testament idea that God is wonderfully concerned with your whole life well-being. You see, God isn't primarily just concerned with with end-of-life concerns and matters for you, but he takes into account, he takes into his awareness where you are and how you are feeling now. So Paul extends to them the covering of God's grace and the blessing of his wellness and their whole life well-being, and he pairs them together, grace and peace to you. This is what he extends to them. And by proxy, we recognize that he extends the same things to us. So listen, I don't know where you are this morning. You find yourself wayward, far away, distant from God. You're angry, you're ticked off, you're disappointed. And God comes to you and he says, once again, here's my grace. You feel a sense of of just being overwrought, overdone. You feel yourself being completely emptied and poured out. Life is too much for you. You feel as if no one cares for you. And what you hear in this is the wellness, the goodness, the peace and comfort of God comes to you. That's where he wants to find you this morning. And that's where he delights in you finding him. Will you receive in your life God's grace and his peace? That's what Paul would have for the Thessalonians. That's what I, that's what the Lord, I believe, would have for you in your life today. Paul goes in and he describes the Thessalonians in terms of this model church. And so if, if, if this was going to be submitted and this was of kind of on a church profile, and they're writing these things. They would have candidates lined up around the block saying, oh man, look at this. This is a group of self-starters who love each other and who are getting it done for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, I don't even care what the compensation, well, okay, I care a little bit about what the compensation package is, but I'm willing to relocate to a church like this. This is how they should feel. 
This is how they should feel. That They should feel as if God's grace and his peace at work in their lives has driven them to be faithful, has allowed them to stand up from the very beginning of suffering harm, of suffering difficulty, that that trauma, that difficulty did not typify. It did not make them a people of reaction, but it made them a people of proaction. They are actively engaged in living out their faith and doing so in all faithfulness. So Paul goes to them, he says, we give thanks for you always. We give thanks for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So essentially we see Paul, we see Timothy, and we see Silas gathered together in this first century prayer huddle. And they're going through and they're like, let's, let's remember to pray for Lydia. Uh, she was a seller of fine goods. Let's remember to pray for the Philippian jailer. I wonder if he still has his job. Let's remember to pray for the church of the Thessalonians. And they're like, yes. And so they're caught up. When they come together for prayer, they remember this church and they're praying for them. This is their style of life. This is challenging for us. This is difficult for us because many of us, the ways in which we engage in prayer is I'm walking down the hall and I see Robert and I say, Robert, how are you? And he doesn't get that this is just a perfunctory greeting and he actually proceeds to tell me how he is which is instantly frustrating, Robert. We need to find a better way of engaging. And he says, my aunt this, my dog this, my car this, my job this. And, and by the third this, I'm completely, uh. And the way of escape for me in this is to say, I will pray for you. But for many of us, what this is in Christian ease is a termination of conversation and a requesting for you to cease and desist in your litany of complaint. Do we get this? That's a real shame. Many of us, it's not from a sense of hard-heartedness. It's from an overwhelming sense of busyness, of preoccupation with our own lives. Listen, if you're going to tell someone that you're willing to pray for them, be willing to stop right there, grab them by the hand, put your hand on their shoulder and say, listen, I may not remember later because I am forgetful. And, and, and a little bit selfish, but let me pray for you now. Would that be okay? Now, Paul doesn't just pray for them then. He remembers them often, and this is how we should be as a church, constantly going before the Lord and saying, Lord, I want to carry these people once again. I want to be bound to them. And I want what is true of them to be true of me and true of us as a group of people. Now, listen, he says, we give thanks for you always, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. He notices three things in them. It's their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness in hope. So they take them, and he says, we remember before God, verse 3, your work of faith. Your work of faith. Now, when we think about faith, we recognize that, that even when we pair these terms together, that there is a tension because we read over and again in Paul that we are saved by faith and not by works. But when Paul comes into it, he says, we give thanks to God. We're thankful for what we see in you, that you are working, that you are busy, that you are effective. You're not sitting on your rear ends doing nothing, showing up for prayer meetings just so somebody can mark you off in attendance, giving as a perfunctory exercise and doing the least amount possible to be noticed and seen. Paul says you're working and you're working hard. It is your work of faith. James says it this way in James 2, 14 through 17. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says they have faith, but they do not have works? 
And he asked this question, can that faith save them? Can that faith save them? Essentially, you walk up to this person and they say, man, I'm a Christian. And you're like, can you help me understand what that means and what that looks like in your life? And they begin to describe uh, their family's faith, their granny's faith. They begin to describe their family's origins. Perhaps they talk about a church in a location that perhaps they've been to. They know where it is loosely. Just don't nail them down on the specifics. We're not talking addresses, people. We're talking shrub on the right, turn left. He says, if a brother and sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? He says, in essence, when you see someone and you can do something to affect change in their life, when you see somebody in need, when you see somebody who is desperate, and instead what you want to do is, let me just hold my hand over here. I just want to pray for you long distance. I'm sending you warm thoughts. I'm sending you whatever's. But you don't dig in. You don't invest yourself in their lives. That faith is worthless, James tells us. He says, so also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. This is arresting and troubling for us. Because we want to be a people who live in a life submitted to faith, right? I mean, please tell me that I've not wasted nine and a half years with you. Like, we want to be a people whose lives are typified by having faith. We have to recognize that such faith that does not motivate, does not show itself over and over again in works, in the doing of things, is empty. It's void. And what he does next is he says, it's your faith, it's, it's, it's your works of faith, and then it is your labor of love. Now, labor of love is a term that we use to describe things we don't want to do. Right, And so if you were married or dating years ago and you went and saw the Titanic with your girlfriend or your wife, your, friend, your guy friends might say, man, that is a labor of love. And you're like, no, that was the greatest three-hour nap I've ever gotten. You go to your kids' uh, recitals. You, you take on some project that you have no desire to finish, but you're just doing it because of how you feel about the other person. And that we would say that is a labor of love. Don't bring that interpretation. Don't apply that to this passage. Paul isn't in some sense saying, you did things you didn't want to do for the benefit of others. No, when he says it is a labor, this word here is described about how someone feels after they were beaten. So imagine, imagine that Marcus takes you out in the upper commons area and he just waylays you. I mean, just beats you over and over and over again, like big belt buckle, just abuses the snot out of you, like spit flying out of his beard, beating you. I mean, just reckless. And how you would feel after that beating. And I'm willing to bet it would be a good one. And some of you may deserve it, but that's neither here nor there. But when we recognize what we would feel in that moment, now imagine drawing yourself back up in your full strength and then headed out to serve. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. But this is exactly what they're doing. This is exactly what they're facing. These aren't polite terms meant to build them up. This recalls what they faced four weeks into their Christian walk. They're sitting, gathered in a prayer meeting, 
the authorities bust in, they grab them by the hair, they grab them by their tunics, they drag them before the authorities, they throw them down, and they accuse them of treason. From the very beginning, they've labored in life. What does it look like for you to suffer? What limits have you set in your willingness to suffer? Most of us across this room would say that my limits for suffering are low. If I could be totally honest and transparent, that what we would say time and again is I am one who pursues comfort. I am one who enjoys peace. I'm one who avoids suffering. They labored in love. It typified who they are, and it's what Paul again and again took to the Father. I'm thankful for them that they were a people when beaten, continued to love and to serve. When they suffered, they continued to love and to serve. Paul describes next, he says, it's their work of faith, it's their labor of love. Lastly, he says, it is the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where we find it. If Paul had just left it on those two things, there's a sense at which they feel wonderfully self-assured. It's as if someone were to come up to you and say, you're really a kind person, you're really quite lovely, you're a hard worker, and and in whatever ways they're building you up, we have this preoccupation to feel wonderfully self-assured. Got the work of faith, it builds them up. Got the labor of love, it builds them up. But when it comes to their steadfastness, when it comes to their ability to remain under difficulty, what, in what place, in what name do they find their sure footing? They find it alone in Jesus. The steadfastness of their hope is not in their own ability to endure. Now, this is wonderfully freeing and terrifically difficult to apply. Listen to what he says here. The hope you have of making it out of 2022 alive is not in a robust immune system. It's certainly not in the hope and trust of the federal government. Amen? A lot more students than I thought. (laughs) Even at a young age, they're beginning to distrust the federal government. And I heartily endorse that. Our hope and trust has to remain in Jesus Christ. And we come to recognize the degree to which our hope and trust remain in him when we evaluate the response we have to the failures around us. So begin to think of it in terms of this. And this may sound strange and this may be an odd application for some of you. But how do you feel it in your body when things go wrong? Do you feel a sense of anxiety rising? Do you feel your pulse begin to rise? Do you feel yourself begin to sweat? When, when things go wrong, when uh, the situation is not at all how you want it to be, how do you feel this in your body? Do you stay at peace? Do you stay at ease? When our hope is in Christ, we recognize the waywardness of our heart, the shifting sands of our experience in our inability to make things right. When we are steadfast in him, even when things fall away, our health fails, our jobs uh, quit, everyone bails on us, we find ourselves remaining in steadfast footing. 
This is where the hope is. This is the hope of the Thessalonians. This is the hope of us today in 2022, that we would be steadfast in our hope of our sovereign Messiah, Jesus Christ. He gives them this assurance. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, chosen by him. Look at what he says there in verse 4. They are loved by God and that he has chosen them. Now, let this be informative to us that we have this, this understanding that makes its way back over and again that we have to take ourselves back to here that Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, but God being rich in mercy, his graciousness, he has lavished his great love upon us, even, verse 5, when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You find yourself at your most horrible, your most despicable, your most, uh, you're engaging in some angry tirade. You're living out sin. You're pouring out venom on your, everyone around you. And sin is winning the war in your heart. Even in that place, Christ died for you. Even in that place, and listen to me, especially in that place, his love finds you. This idea of being chosen that Second uh, Timothy 1.9 tells us that before the ages began, God chose you before you had a chance to do anything good. Before you had a chance to stop moving away from him. Before you had a chance to stop responding in hate, he purposed to save you. It should lead us to a deep appreciation for the Lord should lead us to this deep sense of an ability to forgive those who transgress against us because we recognize we are solely a recipient of God's grace. Paul wants them to see in some sense of how this came to be for them and how they were transformed. And so he describes it to them in terms of verse 5, how the gospel came to their midst. And they would have known this. Paul's there and he's speaking in the synagogue and he says he's reasoning with them. He's offering an apology. He's arguing that the Christ had to suffer and die and this Jesus is the one you've been waiting on. He is the Messiah. And we see this in verse 5. He said, we brought to you the gospel not only in word, and that's this reasoning, that's this argumentation he's putting forth. He said, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He said, we reason to you with words, and they say, yes, we remember that. I feel like this is the level at which a lot of us, when somebody says, how do you know you're a Christian? We go back to the reasoning of word that we receive. Well, I remember my pastor came to my house, and he talked to me, and we had this conversation and I went through these steps, and then at some point he waited until three bubbles rose from the water, and I was baptized. Glory, hallelujah. And we based our salvation on these things. But Paul says, this isn't how it came to you. Yes, you received it in word. Yes, you received it in power. And the full conviction that we had of the Holy Spirit now rests in you as well. The idea of power the idea of power is transforming that which is dead, that which is blind, that which is moving in a wayward direction and completely altering what it is. You see, the power of God at work in them was the power at once to bring from the dead that which was spiritually dead and make it alive. 
that which was spiritually blind and to give it sight, that which was completely disinterested in the things of God and to give it a keen awareness and a desire. The power of God is at work in everyone who names the name of Jesus because none of us get saved according to our works. It's reminding them of this. The power of God is at work in you. And there's this promise laden in that that the power of God remains at work in you. Because we have this awareness that we heard the word, that the power of God worked in us, that it's still at work in us, we are able to come into this understanding of full conviction, or rather, full assurance. There's no reason for you to doubt. There's no reason for you to disbelieve. All the assurance you need is not on the basis of all the good things you have done, are doing, or purpose to do. The assurance, the assurance you have that God has saved you and that you are his rests in the finished work of Jesus. So if someone comes to you and they say, how do you know you are a Christian? Your response is not, I've given my life to him, I've submitted. How do you know that you are saved? You say, because Jesus died and he rose again. And even though I fail you, and even though I give you testimony for what it is to be a hypocrite, even in these things, still, I believe in Jesus. If you're a follower and a believer in Jesus Christ, one of the supreme works of the enemy is to lead you in doubting. To lead you in disbelief. Because if he can do that, he can make you completely ineffective. He'll, send, he'll, he'll transform your life from the potential of being one who is effective for the gospel to being one who's so completely centered on all the ways that my life and my testimony does not give me the ability to communicate the gospel. He wants you to live in doubt. He wants you to live in disbelief. He wants you to live and this feeling of, I am entrapped in my failures. That's what the enemy wants for you. And he's going to reinforce that in your inner monologue. He's going to reinforce that from the testimony of those around you. But what God wants to be true of you is that you would counter those, that inner monologue, counter those words with the truth of God's word that says, even still, Christ died for me. You're never more far from God at the moment that he saved you. You cannot return there because you stay here in salvation by the power of his spirit, which Ephesians tells us, hold you fast until the day of his coming. If you're not a follower and believer in Jesus Christ, there is no good thing you can do to save yourself. There is no good thing you can be to save yourself. There's no high opinion that the people around you can have of you that will save you. What is needed for you to do is to cry out to Jesus and be saved. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we are in this place, gathered together, 
Got to remind it of the testimony recently given of a woman in Nigeria. She watched her father be beheaded. She watched her brothers left for dead. And reflecting upon that, She said the way she practices her faith is different. The way she prays is different. The way she worships is different. The way she reads her Bible is different. And all of these things, not out of a sense of fear, but out of an assurance and a conviction that you hold her fast. God, I pray that this morning you would hold us fast the slings and the arrows of the enemy, that we would see them coming and that our footing would remain steadfast because it is placed in Jesus and not in our ability to overcome. You have made us to be a needful people and you are a faithful God. So God, I pray that you would work in the heart of the believer to help them to see the assurance that they are able and that you desire for them to enjoy in Jesus, God, I pray that you would be at work in the heart of the unbeliever, the person who doesn't know Jesus. They've not been saved by him. God, that you would call them to salvation, that you would release them from the trap of striving. God, we submit all of these things to you. In Christ's name, amen.